0: In some circumstances, I have a distinct advantage over other people. This isn't an advantage that I've earned. This advantage stems from the way the world is oriented, from the way many societies are oriented. I'm a straight, white, middle class, cisgendered, English-speaking male from the developed world who earns U.S. dollars, carries a U.S. passport, works in a creative, technology-based field, who has higher education, who isn't super short or super tall physically, who's neurotypical and common-bodied, and who isn't a member of any religious organization. That last attribute is perhaps the one that puts me at a disadvantage more of the time than any of those other attributes. Not being part of some religious or spiritual group is not particularly favored in most societies. And in fact, even here in the United States, people who were polled by Pew this year have said that they would be 51% less likely to vote for a presidential candidate who doesn't believe in some kind of God. That's more than any other attribute that they were polled for. 23% of people would be less likely to vote for a Mormon. 41% would be less likely to vote for a candidate who's had financial struggles. 37% would be less likely to support a candidate who's had an extramarital affair. But 51% would not vote for me. But all that being said, I still come out looking pretty good in terms of my other attributes because of the way the society in which I operate favors or tends to favor those attributes over other possible attributes that I might have. Most of them land me squarely in the not biased against or biased in favor of categories, if anything. I say this not because being aware of one's advantages inherently does anything to change the system, a system that is full of unequal playing fields and unearned advantages. But because being aware of bias, of one's own privilege, allows one to see the world more clearly. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about different sorts of privilege and how the awareness or lack of awareness of these advantages and disadvantages influence the conversations that we have about just about everything. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. I'd like to start this week's conversation with an article from The Economist. This article is entitled, It's Expensive to be Poor. And the point that it makes through a variety of different means, using a variety of different data and statistics and stories, is that the long-term cost of being impoverished, however you happen to get there, is quite substantial. And this seems like the reverse of the way that it should be. People who are more capable of paying these additional fees and costs, it seems that they should be the ones footing the bill. But the cost of operating different services, different services that many people who are middle class and wealthier take for granted go up incredibly as soon as you refocus them on people who don't make as much money or who don't have access to other infrastructural niceties, things like bank accounts, things like a consistent place to live, things like a consistent paycheck. And so what you end up with is people who are being nickeled and dimed to death to the point that they're never quite able to gain traction. They're trying really, really hard to gain purchase and scramble along and trying to stand a little bit taller and get to a place where they can pull themselves out of poverty. But the additional costs that are tacked on to everything, everything from the way that they deal with their money, having to deal with expensive, crazy interests from payday lenders, or having to deal with the consequences of not having a standard bank account, a standard checking account, and therefore not having a credit card or a debit card and being kind of excluded from a lot of what's happening on the internet and other modern aspects of the global marketplace these things continue to add up and continue to hound them. And every time they start to move in a direction where they've got a little bit of money saved, they find themselves hit with a crazy fee of some sort. And this is on top of all of the other fees that exist in the world around them. There is another article that is a little bit more specific that was published in the Washington Post called Poor People Pay for Parking Even When They Can't Afford a Car. And the idea here is that housing is developed in such a way, sometimes because of certain legalities that are in place and sometimes just because that's the way we've done it for a while, that the people who rent apartments, whether or not they use parking spots, part of their rent is going toward developing and maintaining those parking spots. So people who are trying to rent at a lower income bracket find themselves with these additional costs paying for the things that other people in a higher bracket are enjoying, but not seeing the benefits of that. There are less direct costs of being impoverished as well. People who are better off, for instance, can invest in quality when they buy just about anything, and so they find themselves having to replace their items a lot less frequently. Whereas somebody who doesn't have much money and finds themselves suddenly in need of something will typically have to buy a crappier version of whatever that happens to be. And so then that becomes, rather than a long-term asset that they've invested in, it becomes a burden pretty much immediately after they've purchased it. It's something that decreases in value almost immediately. They also can't afford, typically, to buy in bulk, the way that people who have access to lump sums of money can do. So rather than buying 24 rolls of toilet paper at a time and getting each roll quite cheaply, they might buy one or two at a time, and each roll is relatively more expensive because they're being bought on a smaller scale. There are so many examples of this, so many examples of how people who have less money to begin with are kept in an economically insecure situation, not because of anybody's maliciousness, but just because of the way things are set up. Because the deck is stacked against them in so many different ways. Just to operate then outside of that system, outside of that negatively stacked deck, is a type of privilege. You could certainly call it that. Because in so many different ways, by so many different metrics, the world is improving vastly all the time. In terms of convenience, in terms of safety, in terms of health, despite the fact that we read a great deal about how horrible everything is all the time, by every single metric, the world has improved dramatically in the last hundred years. And it simply continues to do so all the time. Unless we have another world war or something, chances are it will continue to go in that direction. And that's the case for a substantial portion of the people on the planet. And those of us who are fortunate to be in that group, where things are just getting better and better and better, we enjoy a certain amount of privilege. That is an advantage that we have because suddenly we have access to this global communication infrastructure and a global shipping infrastructure that makes everything cheaper. We have access to ideas and education. And even though these things aren't perfect, certainly nowhere near perfect, they are huge advantages over what people 100 years would have enjoyed. And they are huge advantages over what, People in lower socioeconomic classes today enjoy. Whether they're people in countries that are predominantly populated by people who are in lower income brackets compared to other nations, or people within our own country and within our own societies that simply happen to be lower on the economic totem pole. Now just take a moment to think about that, because it's important that we think about this. That's the whole point that I want to address here is that thinking about being privileged, about having some kind of advantage, is incredibly uncomfortable. It's something that our minds rebel against because there's so many implications that come with it. There's the implication, first and foremost, that maybe we are the reason, or at least part of the reason, that these other people are suffering, or at least don't enjoy the same advantages that we do. And in the case of economics, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the case. Because we live in a scarcity-based society, there tend to be winners and losers. And people are not winning and losing just because of skill. They are winning and losing because of the situation they were born into, because of things that happen to them throughout their lives, because they have personalities or physical conditions or something like that that isn't compatible with the way society operates or what society values, because they have some other attribute, such as the language that they speak or the religion that they adhere to or the color of their skin or their gender, that might put them in a position to have to struggle a little bit harder to achieve the status and the advantages that other people have just by default. It's not a pleasant thought, because it makes us worry and it makes us wonder. And so in a lot of cases, it's much more convenient and pleasant to ignore it or to assume that it's not happening or, as happens in a lot of cases, to assume the people in these different economic situations put themselves there, that they are responsible for being in the dire straits that they are in. And no doubt that in some cases, this is absolutely true. But in the majority of cases, and even the ones that very much look like there's somebody who is at fault for their own situation, I would argue, there are other variables at work there, some that are opaque and some that are far more transparent and difficult to see. Part of the reason that some of these variables can be so obscure, is that they're not all the same. It's not just somebody being born into a family with money or not, or being born into a wealthy society or civilization or not. There are uncountable different potential privileges and anti-privileges that somebody can have. And that's another reason why it's so easy to assume blamefulness as opposed to assuming largely chance when it comes to somebody's position within society or the way that somebody operates or the way somebody is as a person. Consider ability as a privilege or anti-privilege. Ability in this context means to be common-bodied, that is able-bodied, or not fully able-bodied. Perhaps you have lost a limb or you are in a wheelchair, perhaps you are blind There are a great number of benefits in having full 2020 vision, to have all of one's limbs intact, and to be able to get around without a wheelchair or other assistance oriented device. And this advantage is not derived because people who are in wheelchairs or people who are blind are incapable or completely unable. It's because the way society is organized and the things that we value and the way that we present information and the way that we hire when we're looking for people and considering who's capable and who's not capable is very much oriented and biased toward the quote unquote standard model. Consider a person's class, not just their economic class, but their social class, There are numerous societies, probably all to a certain degree, but numerous societies where this is a great big deal, whether it's a caste system that they belong to, formal or informal, government-sponsored or government-decried, there are a lot of caste systems, or maybe it's a system where your family name means something significant to other people, and as a result, you enjoy a certain amount of privilege for coming from a well-named, famous background or you are held back for the same reasons. There's a great deal of educational privilege that takes place in a lot of different cultures around the world. This is another situation in which our societal structures and our societal norms favor a great deal of education, because in a lot of cases our education systems have been built to mimic and teach a lot of the systems and skills that we will need in the post-industrial workplace. And as a result, people who understand these systems and these machinations and things like authority figures and being on time and such tend to be valued over somebody who might have comparable skills. But because one person has a degree and one person does not, the perception is that the person who has more education will be more competent at this particular job or within this particular organization. Gender is a cesspool of privilege and bias, and has been pretty much as far back as you can go. As far back as we have a written language, there is evidence of gender disparity and prejudice that occurs, particularly against women, in a very few situations against men, but typically against women. And the dynamic here is that out of tradition, or out of some generationally communicated bias, women are exposed to a near-constant anti-privilege when it comes to a lot of different things, everything from education to the workplace to being involved in certain hobbies. It's absolutely remarkable what has been happening within certain industries, like the video game industry and the comic book industry, industries that have been considered for some time to be the realm of boys and men And now women are coming in and doing some amazing work there, and the reception has not been great. They are being criticized for trying to take away something substantive from the field by by being female, basically, by changing the dynamic of the characters or bringing a new perspective. This is an excellent example of the pushback against women in certain fields, many, many, many different fields. And that's not even taking into account just everyday life. The privilege that men tend to enjoy, without even thinking about it, you really have to stop and think about it to recognize this in most cases, is that we typically don't walk down the street wondering if we're going to be sexually assaulted. We typically don't wonder if a person that we're talking to is going to attack us or is going to get angry if they flirt with us and we turn them down. There is an immense amount of privilege built into the way these social interactions occur and the way these businesses are structured and the way culture, which has been traditionally male-dominated, is set up and the way that it's organized. And this is something, again, like all of these different examples of privilege, that it would be very, very difficult to notice if you've never experienced it yourself. The same is true about privilege granted to people who have a more quote unquote generic gender identity or sexual orientation, something that's a little bit more comfortable in the traditional historical way of looking at things, something that's a little bit more binary. There's privilege for certain religions depending on which culture you happen to be in. There are absolutely favored faiths and if you're not a part of that then you're going to have a little bit of trouble when it comes to getting a job or making friends or finding a partner. There's privilege that comes with different types of attractiveness, whether that's the non-physical charismatic type of attractive or the the physical model-esque type of attractive. If you look a certain way that adheres to a given society's standards of beauty, then you will tend to enjoy a certain amount of privilege that other people who are not quite so fetching do not enjoy. The issue here, the issue in all of these cases, is that, as I mentioned, it's very, very difficult to recognize privilege if you are not on the negative side of it. If you are enjoying the privilege, you almost certainly don't notice it because there's a cognitive dissonance there. If you acknowledge that you are privileged, then you are, in essence, saying that you did not necessarily earn everything that you've done. You've had some advantage from the get-go, and maybe many different advantages for a lot of us. On the flip side, though, if you are on the receiving end of anti-privilege, if you are a woman in a male-dominated society, if you are a, an LGBTQ person living in the 1940s in, in the United States, if you are a Muslim living within the United States or within Europe right now. If you are a blind person, then chances are you have experienced some type of prejudice or bias or anti-privilege or whatever you want to call it, and these experiences are very obvious and real to you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that other people are going to accept that. It doesn't mean that other people are going to believe you. It doesn't mean that other people are not going to look at your experiences and say, toughen up, yeah, right, okay. Because they don't see what you see, they haven't experienced what you've experienced. As I mentioned before, some of these privileges are astoundingly obvious. The privilege that men in Western society in particular have enjoyed for pretty much ever is pretty darn obvious for anybody who looks. If you look throughout history, you can see how men and men's issues and men's preferences have kind of guided the way things have gone and have shaped the way that Everything from religion to family to economics have panned out, but some of these privileges are a little more obscure. Consider the idea of the atomic family. So the the atomic family is a husband and a wife and maybe one or two kids, and that is considered to be the default, the generic, archetypical, correct family. And so just considering that, considering that this is considered to be the default. If somebody were to make an icon of a family, they would probably represent something like this in icon form. If most people were to picture a prototypical family, that's what they would picture. And so without even saying a word, without saying anything negative about any group, without introducing any type of hate or scorn or even implied preference, Establishing this as the default, or at least continuing to use it as the default, excludes a great number of people. It establishes a normal and a not normal, and as a consequence, establishes a correct and incorrect way to have a family. This is something that the LGBTQ community is going through right now. Where they finally, here in the United States, have the ability to get legally married. And yet, almost everywhere you look, when you see representations of marriage, you still see this traditional model because that archetype is still considered to be the norm. And as a result, it grants a certain privilege to anybody who falls within that normalcy. That same idea, that same concept of the atomic family and the correctness of it how it is a stepping stone on the path of life also excludes another group it excludes people who are single for a great deal of history people who have been single either partway into their adult life or throughout their entire life whether by choice or otherwise these people have been excluded as well because they do not fit within that mold of an atomic family it does not fit the default. It falls outside of normal boundaries. When the bias is toward coupling, coupling with somebody of the opposite gender, and having children, then anybody who does not fit within that schema suffers from a, at least a small degree of anti-privilege, whereas people who neatly fit within that schema have privilege because their life choices are supported by the zeitgeist. It's something that fits neatly within that storyline. And again, this is not something that atomic families are doing to anybody else. It's not like every husband and wife with kids is getting together and plotting against all the gays and all of the single people. It just happens to be the way that society is set up. So there are little advantages that they enjoy living inside that society, whereas these other people have little disadvantages, sometimes very big disadvantages, but in a lot of cases they are very, very small. And these little disadvantages are something that I brought up on a past episode, an episode about freedom of speech as it relates to campuses. The term that's used for these is microaggressions. Microaggressions are insidious because even more than, I don't know, mega aggressions, I guess you could call them, they are invisible to people who are not experiencing them. And as a result, they become objects of conflict in some cases between these two groups. Because here you have on one side a group of people who are not fitting within that schema and suffering from anti-privilege and really experiencing this, whether they know why or not, but they are experiencing something that is harmful to them in some way. And when they express it or when they acknowledge it in any way, what they typically get in response is that they should toughen up or just deal with it. Because the people on the other side who could be offering sympathy or at least acknowledging that this situation exists, therefore making the victims not feel like they're crazy in addition to being victims, instead are treating them as whiners because they can't see the problem. They think that these people are just whining about a problem that doesn't exist. We're trying to create conflict where no conflict exists. And this is a real bummer. It's really one of the major issues when it comes to discussing the concept of privilege. Because simply by bringing it up, it implies guilt. It implies that somebody is to blame for this. When in reality, what we're really trying to do when we discuss privilege is to round out our perception of the world, to understand and see these different influences and forces that are swirling around us, usually not because anybody's trying to victimize anybody else, but just because it's there. And we're trying to do it in such a way that is not pointing a finger at anybody. But unfortunately, that's the way it tends to come across. One example that stands out to me that is very relevant to what's happening right now is that when we say something like white privilege, we Tend to lump a great number of people into one group and then assume that that same privilege applies across the board. I mean, the term white privilege is, it's a shorthand, but it is something that is incredibly broad for something that doesn't necessarily apply to all people who are white. You can, for example, have incredibly poor people who are white and that economic anti-privilege can wash away whatever racial privilege they might enjoy in certain circumstances. And it can seem very offensive to people who are in the group being called out for their privilege because it really does feel in a lot of cases as if one group is calling you a victimizer rather than simply establishing that something is happening. One recent hubbub around this topic stemmed from the Black Lives Matter hashtag. And this was a pushback basically against a great deal of violence that was and is occurring against the black community here in the United States where people who are black are just being met with incredible violence and in some cases being killed for doing things that if, if a white person did it and white people frequently do do these things, they would be treated with relative kid gloves. There is a, an image going around the internet right now of all of the white male mass shooters that have killed masses of people, sometimes dozens of people, over the last handful of years. And they are all still alive. They were not shot because police officers exercised a great deal of caution and tried not to shoot them. Whereas some black people have been killed for standing in the wrong place at the wrong time and apparently looking threatening to somebody who had a gun, who happened to also have a badge. And so in this context, what this hashtag was saying was, listen, a lot of black people are being mistreated, suffering from the consequences of both mundane and severe prejudice, and in some cases even being killed. It doesn't seem like society thinks that the lives of black people matter, but they do. But what outsiders who are not confronted with the prejudice with the anti-privilege that black people deal with day in and day out here is a message that itself is prejudiced against everyone who isn't black what people who are not aware of that prejudice or who think it's an overreaction here when they hear black lives matter is black lives matter but we don't really care about the rest of you we are focused on ourselves so the rest of you can screw off this is an excellent example Of the type of conflict that can result from bringing up privilege, of trying to make different groups of people or society as a whole aware of the privilege that certain people enjoy. And these misunderstandings that lead to conflicts happen all the time. It's one of the major barriers that gets between where we are now and where we could be, trying to level the playing field a little bit. It turns the entire conversation around privilege into a bit of a minefield nobody wants to step into that minefield because you don't know when you'll accidentally step in the wrong place and either accidentally imply something about a group of people who are not victimizing you but who are not acknowledging that you are being victimized or you could say something about a group that you don't realize is on the opposite side of this type of privilege and as a result come across as completely ignorant or perhaps somebody who thinks that they deserve it or who doesn't think that they should be able to get out from under it. Those who are suffering from microaggressions, and in some case mega-aggressions, can't fathom how those on the other side of things do not see their plight and the consequences of systematic bias and privilege. They cannot imagine how Anybody could fail to see this because it's such an integral part of their everyday experience. Those on the other side of things are incentivized both internally and externally by their own cognitive dissonance and their own desire to maintain their worldview and by society, which reinforces that desire, to not notice, to not acknowledge when somebody is at a disadvantage because then that changes the way that you have to see not just them, but also yourself. This would be an implicit demotion of your status within society or within your organization or industry, within your social group. And it might even be perceived as you being a victimizer when you feel that you've done nothing wrong. And perhaps you haven't. Perhaps the only thing that you've done wrong is to exist within a society where these types of inequalities exist. It's true that those who are born into privilege have no more control over that than those who are not born into privilege. But for those who hold egalitarianism in high regard, that is the idea that we're all equal and deserve equal opportunities and rights, it's important that we notice these inequalities and that we listen and that we take very seriously the sorts of stories and messages that we receive from people on the other side of this, even if we don't see or understand or even particularly care immediately about these things because it doesn't apply to us or seems like it doesn't apply to us. This sort of awareness helps round out our view of the world, and it helps us, over time, empathize with others' experience of it And even if something like Black Lives Matter doesn't matter to you, even if something like Black Lives Matter seems completely irrelevant to your life and the way that you live and the society in which you operate, it's important to recognize that to someone it is very, very meaningful. It is perhaps the difference between life and death, either literally or philosophically. It is something that is that important to someone. And I do think it's possible to accept that these types of inequalities exist without feeling like you need to make it about yourself. I remember the pushback, and it's faded a bit, but it's still there. The pushback against the Black Lives Matter movement, which was a hashtag that said, All Lives Matter And on the surface, that makes perfect sense. Yes, all lives matter, but the Black Lives Matter people are not saying that all lives don't matter. They're saying, listen, we're bringing up a problem that we are experiencing. And the people who come back with All Lives Matter are saying, hey, we didn't do anything to you. And in doing so, are making somebody else's issues about them. It's as if somebody runs up to you on the street and they're covered in blood and they said, I was just attacked by a man. And you, being a man, push them aside and say, well, I didn't do anything to you. It's making somebody else's problem that they are trying to express to you, and maybe even trying to get your help with about you, and allowing your own hurt feelings in the moment to get in the way of broadening your worldview a little bit, and perhaps even being part of a solution to a problem that you didn't even realize was there until that very moment. Because of the internet and the myriad other communication and megaphone-like tools that we have available today. The issue of privilege and prejudice is getting an increasing amount of attention. And those who have these experiences that were once swept under the rug by people who didn't recognize or recognize the validity of them are able to connect with one another and see that they're not alone. They're able to share their stories and build communities And feel more comfortable discussing what they've experienced, not just with each other, but with everyone, including the people who have traditionally refused to acknowledge that there's a problem here. I think most of us can look out into the world and recognize an increasing disparity of some sort or another, whether it is religious or gender-based or about sexual orientation or whether it's economic at least one of these things probably resonate because most of us are on the receiving end of the negative consequences of some type of privilege or another. But we don't necessarily know where this increased disparity is coming from, or or have the depth of field that allows us to understand why it's happening now. A very uncomfortable truth, even more uncomfortable than the truths I've been talking about already, is that we all have some kind of privilege, in some circumstance. Because privilege is an ever-shape-shifting, warping, distorting thing. Those technologies that I mentioned that are allowing us to communicate with each other and be exposed to new things that we never would have been exposed to before, that our grandparents never would have imagined existed, those very same things that are enabling new conversations and allowing us to connect with other people, share our stories, and Create communities are also exposing us to new realities, to new social structures, to new ways of being and ways of thinking. And all of this novelty, all of these new ideas, these new concepts, these new organizational structures, these new types of relationships are making it all the more likely that each and every one of us will be involved in many different circumstances that were previously unencountered by us. And many of these circumstances will put us in a position of privilege, and many of them will put us at a significant disadvantage. So the same tools that allow us to organize and feel like we're not alone against bias also leads to the real or imagined decrease in privilege for some other group. Every time somebody is pushed up, somebody else is pushed down, or at least that's the way that it seems to operate. And that last point is important, because privilege tends to be somewhat of a zero-sum game. If one group of people have an advantage, that means everyone who does not have that advantage is inherently at a disadvantage, just by the nature of things and the relativity between the cards that they're playing with in this particular game. And so the only real way to balance things is to remove that privilege, but to take away privilege from someone, particularly someone who has always enjoyed it, and so it's something that they take to be the default nature of things, feels to that person like being victimized. It feels like they are suddenly being disadvantaged by somebody who is trying to punish them in some way. And so in situations where, for example, white men have traditionally had a lot of advantages, a lot of privilege, when other groups, when women or when other races come into those situations and are given the same privileges that they enjoy, then some of their privilege feels like it's being taken away. And to their perception, from their standpoint, they didn't have privilege to begin with. They worked hard to get there. They deserved to be there. And so what it feels like from that standpoint is that this other group is coming in with privilege and stomping all over them, making them the victims. And it's because of this that I tend to think the best way and the most realistic way to balance out these types of situations is not to try to force an absolute equality, not trying to give everyone exactly the same type of privilege. Because frankly, to do so would be nearly impossible because there's so many different influences and advantages and disadvantages that everybody has. That math would be so crazily complex that unless we have a drastic rebuilding of society from the bottom up, we're unlikely to be able to do that accurately. But also because I believe we can accomplish it in a different way and in a way that makes a lot more sense for who we are and the individuality that we all enjoy. Consider that if we all had access to the same fundamentals to things like healthcare and education and certain types of opportunity, that then our differences and our relative advantages and disadvantages would not be such a big deal because we'd be playing from foundationally at least a level playing field. And so creating some type of situation, I don't really know what that would look like, though it does seem to me that creating a balanced foundation for everybody would be a good step in the right direction. Creating some way that we can embrace and recognize and acknowledge each other's differences, but to do it in such a way where none of the anti-privilege is so strong that it becomes a critical component to a person's character and experience day to day. And so that more of us enjoy a great number of advantages and Maybe all of us experience enough advantages that they cease to seem like advantages and we're all just overall doing significantly better on every level. There are a lot of different ways to look at this, and my way of looking at it is not going to be every person's way of looking at it. Every single person has a different experience with this realm. Every single person has different anecdotes to add and different experiences that they've had directly different experiences that they've had a result of the minefields that this topic can sometimes be. And I understand that, and I encourage you to consider this and to think hard about it and maybe even converse about it and not necessarily take what I or anybody else is saying as gospel because it really is an unconcluded conversation. We have barely begun to have this conversation, so there's a lot that needs to be said. But I do think that it's something that it's important that we are all aware of on whatever level because that way when we do have that person who runs up to us covered in blood saying that they've been attacked, we can take them seriously and then we can act in accordance with our own morality as opposed to doing that knee-jerk thing where we just assume that they're lying or assume that they are victimizing us assuming that their critique of something that happened is criticism of us. I think there's a lot of different ways to respond to that while still acknowledging that there's a lot of different experiences happening in the world right now, and that these experiences absolutely color a lot of the conversations that we're having and a lot of the events that are happening around the world. It's not just Black Lives Matter within the United States. It's not just the... Massive shift in economic power from a large group of people to a very small fraction of 1% of people. It's not just the anti privilege that is being experienced by the refugees across Europe. This is something that applies to just about everything. If you look around, I think you'll see that this topic truly informs a great deal of what's happening in the world today. Understanding that it's happening is valuable context. It allows us to view the world and what's happening in it accurately so that we can make decisions based on real information, complete information, and according to our actual values, as opposed to acting out of ignorance. And if you think about it, being able to look at everything that you see from that slightly different perspective is a certain type of privilege. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show, you can do that at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, I would very much appreciate a review at those same places, whether it's iTunes or wherever. Those reviews, those stars, those written reviews, whatever you have the time to leave, are immensely valuable in reaching new people. And so I very much appreciate you taking the time if you enjoy the show. If you'd like to help support the show, there's a couple different ways to do that. You can leave a review, as I just mentioned. You can share the show with a friend who you think might enjoy it. And you can also contribute financially if you're feeling like doing so. If you go to letsknowthings.com, there's a couple different links there where you can contribute a dollar per episode or more if you like, but a dollar per episode would be amazing via PayPal or Venmo and a couple different options as well. You can also support the show and support my work overall by checking out my books and perhaps buying and reading one. You can find my Entire collection of books that I've written at colin.io. And if you enjoy Let's Know Things, you might enjoy some of my other work. You might enjoy my blog, which can be found at exilelifestyle.com, or my YouTube show, which can be found at considerthis.io. There is a Let's Know Things Facebook page, so you can go check that out and say hello or leave a comment about this episode or post a link you think is interesting. And there's a Let's Know Things newsletter as well that is published every Monday, and in it you will find a collection of links to interesting things that I found throughout the last week. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.